again. Consumes 
the altar that's been, or the sacrifice that's been prepared on the altar. It's been carefully, meticulously prepared. All those chapters of building the tabernacle detail, all those chapters of the ritual prescription that we've covered in Leviticus since the beginning of the year, all of it has come to the point where now it's showtime, so to speak, and God does show out. This, this heavenly fire, literally, shoots out from the tabernacle, sets the altar on blaze, the people fall down and rejoice because God has actually done what he promised he would do. He has come to dwell from the tops of Mount Sinai where he is in unapproachable splendor and glory and fearsome fire and storm and all of that. He has come now in some way, some mysterious but yet very visible, tangible way to dwell in the midst of his people because they have acted in obedience to him. And over and over and over, he stressed his desire to be in their midst, but the problem of a common and a sinful people being in the presence of a holy and a, and a, and a consuming fire God. So the priesthood is all of this way. This is, this is the, the way that, that the two things can coexist. And right as the fire comes from the altar, chapter 9, Verse 23, Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of God appeared to all people. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And all the people saw it. They shouted for joy and fell face down. No pause. Continue reading. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, put fire in them, and added incense. And they offered unauthorized, or some say strange, the word is just means either of those, unauthorized or strange, fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So at the height of this ceremony, this, this, this is why I said the chapter breaks are unfortunate, because it makes it seem like this is another event. But this, is, this is the same event. Right when everything's working, everything's going to plan, God has just showed up as a consuming fire. For some inexplicable reason, two of Aaron's sons take their old, non-consecrated, uh, non-prepared incense pans, get their own incense, not the mixture that was given in Exodus 30 that was only to be used, the only type of incense that was to be used on the incense altar. None of that. They get their own thing, take their own whatever formula they had, put it in their censers, and add it to the fire of God. For some reason, we have no idea why they did this. We don't know their motive. The rabbis in ancient Israel came up with about 12 different options for why they did what they did. And none of them are 100% convincing. Um, but what we know is that what they did had no precedent in the entire commands that God has given so far. And it was done in the sight of all the people by the next in line high priests. Nadab and Abihu would have been the next high priest if one of them, if Aaron died. And then if Nadab died, then Abihu would take his place if uh, uh, Nadab didn't have sons. Regardless, so this is the, like as high a ranking you can get other than Moses and Aaron. Coming in during this moment when God is showing his glory to Israel and they decide to add something to it. They decide to add their own help 
to this ceremony or their own prestige or stat, you know, some, give, it, give it their own signature of something, whatever it is. We, we, we really don't know their motive. We don't know. The text just says they just offer strange or unauthorized fire on God's fire. And immediately, verse 2 is exact parallel with verse 24. Something was put on the altar in verse 24. Fire came out and consumed it. Same thing now. Verse uh, 2. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. Moses, <coughs> Moses then said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke of. And he said, among those who approach me, I will show myself holy. And in the sight of all people, I will be honored. And Aaron remained silent. What could Aaron say? His two sons had just done the unspeakable at the most pivotal moment in Israel's history since the Red Sea parted, since the Passover. And, and the, the people in Israel, the two people in Israel, other than Aaron and Moses, who should have known better, acted contrary to what God had commanded at a most crucial time in Israel's history. And as a result, God's holiness that consumed those sacrifices consumed them as well. And so for everyone watching, this would have been a visible, memorable, unforgettable lesson in just who this God was that they were serving. This was not a safe God, like we mentioned last week. This was not a tame God. This was not a God that they could manipulate through their actions. In other cultures of the ancient Near East, in both Egypt and in Canaan, you manipulated the gods into doing what you wanted by performing different rituals. And those rituals were secreted and they were closely guarded by the priesthood of those pagan groups. Not so in Israel. Everyone was given what the priests were supposed to do in Israel. Everyone was known, everyone was made known, or excuse me, it was made known to everyone what the priests were supposed to do and what God's response would be, what they weren't supposed to do, how they were supposed to act, and there was warning after warning after warning. Do not transgress this thing that I'm putting in place. Do not add to it. Do not take away from it. Do not think that you can manipulate it and make it your own. Worship me how I require, not how you think is best whatever desires you have at the moment. The text doesn't tell us Nadab and Abihu's uh, motive, and I think that's pretty helpful because it could have been a number of different things. And the text doesn't want, doesn't invite speculation into, well, it's okay to offer strange fire if the priest has a good reason or something like that. It wasn't like that. It was a stark example of God's holiness being a consuming fire to the detriment of people and to the detriment of the people who were supposed to be the most protected. That's the thing in other ancient Near East cultures, the priests were the ones who had, who, who had the inroad with the gods. So the priests and the gods were, they were, they were tight. If you wanted something from the gods, you went to the priest because the priest and the god were kind of in cahoots. And in Israel, it's just the opposite. The priests have the most responsibility because of their proximity to God's holiness. You see, this is not just an Old Testament thing. At key moments in redemptive history, when God needs to show his people something and ingrain it into them in an unmistakable way, he will behave in ways that are not safe. 
You think of Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament. Yeah. Right at Pentecost when the church is being born. You know, the church, the church age, the Holy Spirit age, General Jesus, Meek and Mild. And people are coming and bringing their offerings to the church in order to provide for the poor among them so that everyone can, can have enough and not be in need. And then this husband and wife come and they have a field and they sell it and they get the money and then they say, we're going to put some of the money aside, but we're going to tell them that we're giving them the money from the field. And so they do that. They, they, they withhold a portion and make it seem as if they're doing this offering, this gift. And immediately the Holy Spirit, the text flat out says it, the Holy Spirit kills Ananias on the spot. He drops dead. And then his wife comes in afterwards because she wasn't there when it happened. And they give her the chance before knowing what happened to the husband. Hey, did, did you guys sell the field and give all the money? Or did, yeah, we gave it all. Boom, she drops dead too. And the whole church is kind of brought into this sense of like, whoa, this is what, what's happening here is not playing around. This is not just a normal religious thing. This is something going on with God's presence in our midst. And their minds would have gone back to Nadab and Abihu. When Jesus' brother, James, is writing his letter to Christians in, in, in the first century, Jesus, his brother, tells them, in chapter 3, verse 1, not all of you should be teachers, because those of you who teach will be held to a stricter standard. His mind would have gone back to certainly the events of Ananias and Sapphira, but, but in particular, the, this event, Nadab and Abihu, the priests were to teach Israel. They were to be the teachers. And so God held them to a higher standard. So when Paul writes to the Corinthians and he's talking about his ministry and, and different people coming along after him and preaching different things and building up their own ministries and laboring to, to, to make their own name great. And Paul says, you know, every man's work is going to be shown by fire and, 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 and it's going to be consumed. And what's built out of lasting, precious materials will remain. And what's built with straw and stubble and hay and wood and all of that will be burned up. So he says that to the Corinthians, letting them know that, that those who desire to teach or to build a ministry or to labor, to build something for the kingdom, everything we build for God will go through the fire. And if we're building according to what God wants, then that fire purifies and refines. If we're building according to whatever our motives are, that fire could very well destroy so it's a warning from the Old Testament that does carry into the New Testament, even though we don't have a little bit of priesthood, even though we don't have literal sacrifices or literal altars, the spirit of the text is still carried over into our own setting. And it should be a warning, it should be a reminder, whenever anyone gets up to speak or to teach or to, 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 to build something for the kingdom, it should always be held balanced with joy and desire to serve God and use the gifts, but held in balance with a fear because of the awesome responsibility that comes along with that. My dad was a preacher since before I was born. I, I was born the year he graduated from seminary, and I uh, still preaching today. And he, uh, we were talking one time. I think I was in high school. 
and it was when I had just started kind of doing some speaking on my own. It might have been college, maybe it was college. But I just started speaking, you know, speak at a youth group or do a youth camp or sometimes like a guest sermon at different places and then we're off to college. So start doing it more. And it was in that period where we were moving from like father-son to kind of like peer relationship sort of. And I remember him telling me one day, every morning, every Sunday morning, he would get up, get ready to go to church. And usually at the early churches we were at when we were growing up, it was like one service. And then we'd get to a little bit bigger church and they'd have two services. And then by the time we were in high school and he was appointed to another church, they had three services. So it, you know, he'd be preaching two or three times a Sunday. This was at the time 20, probably 20 years. And he said every Sunday morning, before he would get up to preach, before he would go to preach, get to the church, almost every Sunday morning he would throw up. Or after he stopped throwing up, he would still be nauseous, sick to his stomach. And he said it was uh, he said it was never fear of speaking, never you know fear of public speaking or getting up in front of people. It wasn't that typical nerve. He said it was always just he would feel, ooh, I'm about to go stand before these people and teach them the word of God, the God of the universe. I'm about to I'm about to go give them a message that I've worked on that is to communicate from the God of all creation into their lives. Yeah. And it would just be that awesome, that, that, that awesome responsibility would kind of hit him and just, you know, make him, make him sick. 20 years. And nobody that ever knew him and ever heard him preach would ever imagine that. There's something in that that I think is very good to keep in mind, especially in our culture, yeah. where Paul didn't have to worry about uh, Christian celebrities in the first century. You know, you didn't become a celebrity by being a Christian. You, you, you got crucified. But further back in Israel's history, Moses, Aaron, Nadab, they did have to worry about godly celebrities. I would at times show, put things into perspective. Like, oh, you want to represent God? Okay. This is what it entails. Are you ready to face responsibility? So you see God acting harshly. You see God acting in ways that we're like, that didn't make sense. You know, Moses later in Deuteronomy, or later in Numbers rather, is going to do something and he's going to misspeak. And he's going to get mad and hit a rock with a stick. And because of that, he will be exempt from entering into the land of Canaan, the promised land. His entire seeming life's purpose will be taken away like that. Aaron too, he'll die before entering into the land and be buried. The, the closer to God, the more of a reality His holiness is. And it's not always the fuzzy sentimental. It's, it's, there's a sense of responsibility in all. And so this story, this is like the only narrative in Leviticus. This, the rest of the book is going to be teachings and laws and distinctions. There's going to be almost no other narrative in Leviticus except this one. And it's the two next in line high priests getting fried in front of the tabernacle after they've offered their sacrifices. So it's, it's, it's important and it matters 
that we understand that Israel understood this. This is why whenever I watch Christian TV, when I, when I hear a lot of sermons or, or celebrity teaching, prosperity gospel, all this stuff that just floods the airwaves, some of it's just annoyance as a Bible teacher. I'm just like, really? This is what they're teaching people. But, but then there's like a, a feeling of, you don't know what you're playing with. You know, you're selling miracle water to these people that are sending you their life savings in hopes that they can get healed. I don't want to be you when you stand before the Lord. God help you for faking miracles or building up your worship service to make it this emotional event where you see people in the audience to go up at the altar call so it'll give it a sense of, oh, people are coming to the Lord and it'll make it seem grand in the eyes of the Lord. God help you. That kind of stuff has no place in God's kingdom. And it's what Paul talked about will one day be revealed by fire. Sometimes that one day is immediate. Sometimes it's immediate. At this point, it was immediate. Now, do we know that Nadab and Abihu died and went straight to hell and are forever condemned? No. Nothing in the text says anything about their eternal destiny. We don't know what happened. We know that they were cut off from Israel. They had no descendants to carry on their line. So their priestly line ended with them. Anything else after that, that's up to God. He was the one that initiated judgment. He's the one that's responsible for the condition of their souls. If, if it had just been a flippant mistake or an innocent mistake, God is the only one who would know that. And so we can trust that he's the one that would take care of that. In fact, we see that. Look at the rest of this chapter. We, we won't have time to go through in detail, but look what happens afterwards. Moses summoned Mishael, Elzaphon, and Elzaphon, sons of Aaron's uncle, Uziel. He said to them, come here, carry your cousins outside the camp, away from the front of the sanctuary. That's what you did with the sin offerings that were uh, given. You, you, you carried it outside the camp. They became the, uh, the sacrifice. They became the sin on the altar that was consumed because of their sin. There's a whole lot more layers and theological stuff going on here, but I just want you to see, they came and carried them still in their tunics outside the camp as Moses had ordered. Their priestly tunics, their priestly God, had been defiled through their sin and had been consumed, so even that could not be passed on to the next priesthood. Their priestly duties ended that day. Then Moses said to Aaron and his sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, do not let your hair become unkempt, do not tear your clothes, this is, that's how you would express official grieving and mourning. You, you would take your hair down and you would let it be messy. Sometimes you put ashes on your head, you tear your clothes at the seams, um, just as a sign of grief. Do not do that, or you will die, and the Lord will be angry with the whole community. But your relatives, all the house of Israel, may mourn for those the Lord has destroyed by fire. Do not leave the entrance to the tent of meeting, or you will die because the Lord's anointing oil is on you. So they did as Moses said. In other words, Moses said, guys, this is still going on. You are still the high priest of Israel. You are to remain here and continue. Your priestly duty over supersedes all of your earthly mourning and your earthly responsibilities at this point on this day right now. You still have a job to represent the people before this consuming fire of God that we serve. Then verse 8, then the Lord said to then the Lord said to Aaron, this is one of the few times that the Lord speaks directly to someone not Moses. 
the Lord said to Aaron, you and your sons are not to drink wine or other fermented drink. Whenever you go into the tent of meeting, you will die. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. You must distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean, and you must teach the Israelites all the decrees the Lord has given them through Moses. So God tells Aaron right at this point, here's your job. Number one, no drinking. Now this seems obvious to us, but this would be far from obvious because priests in the ancient world drank with their sacrifices. Priests who gave oracles or, or uh, prophets or, or people who spoke from the gods frequently did so after being put in a state of inebriation or sometimes using drugs to induce a state of hallucination or uh, some kind of enchantment that would seem to put them in touch with the gods, take them out of their minds so that the mind of the gods could come in and speak through them. They still do this in a number of animist places around the world. And God says you're not to do that. You're to minister with a sharp, clear mind. This is one of the reasons some of the ancient rabbis thought that um, Nadab and Abihu were drunk when they, when they carried out the deal. The text doesn't say that. What it says is God is saying, you are not going to drink. You, are, you have to be clear-minded and focused because what you're dealing with is highly flammable stuff, so to speak. You're dealing with... Uh, my very presence, and you have to know what you're doing. Be like somebody running a nuclear reactor. You don't want them drinking. You don't want the captain of the ship drinking. But they need to be in control. When they're done with those duties, then they can have a drink, then they can unwind, and they can do what they want. The priests could too. But while they're serving in the tabernacle, they're not. Moses said to Aaron and his remaining sons, Eleazar and Ethemar, take the grain offering. He's, Moses is reiterating now what they're to do. Take the grain offering left over from the offering made to the Lord by fire and eat it, prepared without yeast beside the altar, for it is holy, for it is most holy. Eat it in a holy place because it's your share and your son's share of the offerings made to the Lord by fire, for so I have been commanded. But you and your sons and your daughters may eat the breast that was waved and the thigh that was presented. Eat them in a ceremonially clean place. They've been given to you and your children as your share of the Israelites' fellowship offerings. The thigh that was presented and the breast that was waved must be brought that portions of the offering made by fire to be waved before the Lord is a wave offering. This will be the regular share for you and your children as the Lord commanded. So Moses is reiterating what we just read in the previous chapters, saying, guys, this is how you, we've got to finish this ceremony and this is how you have to do it. Make sure you get it right. Make sure you do what God is commanding you. Don't think you can just add and, you know, subtract and do what you want. Willy-nilly, you've just seen what happened to your relatives. Then verse 16, when Moses inquired about the goat of the sin offering and found that it had been burned up, he was angry with Eleazar and Hithamar, Aaron's remaining sons, and asked, why didn't you eat the sin offering in the sanctuary area? It's most holy. It was given to you to take away the guilt of the community by making atonement for them before the Lord. Since his blood was not taken into the holy place, you should have eaten the goat in the sanctuary area as I commanded. Without getting into, because we don't have time, we've got to finish, but without getting into all of the layers of, of commentary on this, the basic gist was the offerings where you did not take the blood in and offer it on the uh, altar inside the sanctuary was the regular sin offerings. The way that that blood atoned for sin was by being eaten. The offering, not the blood, the offering. The blood was poured out, the offering was eaten. The priests were the ones who were to eat it. 
their eating of that sacrifice was one of the ways that symbolized holiness consuming and, and purging from the community sin, which was symbolized by that offering. So literally, the priests were ingesting, they were devouring the sin of the people in, some, in one respect. And, and by that, absorbing all of the sinfulness and the profane uncleanness into their consecrated selves that had been prepared. And that was one of the means by which sin was lifted from the people. There's a whole lot more on that. I'm going to give you a commentary if you want to look at the Jewish scholarship that undergirds it. But the point is, there was a specific thing they were supposed to do with this one offering, and they didn't do it because of the events that had happened at that time. So Moses gets mad at him. He's like, guys, you just saw what happened. What are you doing? So Aaron replied to Moses, verse 19, Today they sacrificed their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord. But such things as this have happened to me. In other words, my family, my, my heirs have defiled their own office by their actions and paid the price for it. All of this has happened. It's just been kind of this little mini train wreck. And uh, so he says, would the Lord have been pleased if I had eaten the sin offering today? Verse 20, when Moses heard this, he was satisfied. The implication is Aaron said, look, they didn't eat the sin. We didn't eat the sin offering. And the, the best way to kind of think about this is, is Aaron saying, not just I was overcome with grief and I couldn't do my job, but we were no longer in a state of purity. We were no longer in a state of, of, of I didn't think we were in a state of cleanliness after my two sons did this, that us as a family should sit and eat this meal together. I, I didn't think that God would be pleased with that. And I didn't want to do this because it would bring, you know, even further disaster, whatever. So here in this chapter, you see two instances of disobedience to God's command. One is punished as strongly as can be. One is actually condoned and accepted. The difference between Nadab and Abihu's disobedience is they offered something contrary to God's will to either put themselves at the forefront or make it their own or to in some way elevate themselves. Whereas Aaron, Eliezer, and Ithamar's disobedience to the command to eat meal was seemingly done out of a desire to not profane the name of the Lord and to not elevate themselves in the eyes of the people as receiving the sacrifice and, and everything is well and good. So two different motives for disobeying the letter of the law. One punished, one is allowed to, okay, that's okay. And you see in that, I, I would suggest you see in that, that God does look into the heart of what the person doing it is. Is the, is the reason for disobeying the letter of the law to glorify God, or is it to glorify yourself or someone else? And you see this with Jesus when he talked about keeping the laws, and Jesus will get on to people get on to Jesus all the time for seeming to break the law, even though he doesn't, he just breaks man-made rituals, but for seeming to have cast down the law. And Jesus always points people back to the intention of the law, which is to glorify God and to serve other people. And that's what you see in those instances where Jesus is accused of breaking the law. So, so it's, it's, it's within this difficult part of the text, but Leviticus 10 is the most troubling passage in all of Leviticus for most people. And I would suggest it's because they are not familiar or have not familiarized themselves with Leviticus 1 through 9 and the setting in which 10 happens. 10 is not a new event, it happens right in chapter nine. And it's the most important event in Israel's history uh, at this point. And so God's judgment is very swift and very severe, but also in Aaron's deviating and his sons, other sons deviating from the prescription. 
prescribed eating of the meal. You see, God's severe judgment is also tempered with mercy when they're doing it for the desire of maintaining his holiness rather than aggrandizing themselves. Two minutes over. So we'll see you next week. Have a great week, and there's still plenty of things I would say.